Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Centre for Perioperative Care entitled Patient Safety in Perioperative Practice. My name is David Selwyn and I'm the Director of the Centre for Perioperative Care and I'm delighted to be joined today by two guests. Dr Megan Griffiths who is an anaesthetic call trainee at the Whittington Hospital in London and Captain Alex Jolly who is a short haul pilot and lead for the Wing Factors project. During the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to discuss the work that Dr Griffiths has undertaken as part of her winning training presentation from the RCOA CPOC Patient Safety Imperative Practice Conference, which was held on the 20th of April 2021. And her talk was entitled Identifying and Mitigating Latent Safety Threats Using In Situ Simulation with Human Factors Feedback Delivered by Pilots. So just setting the background, there's a long established recognition relationship and synergy between aviation simulator training and medical simulator training. And of course, traditional medical procedural training has been learned on real patients, but simulation offers that opportunity to practice and master those skills in safe simulated environments. But I think the relationship with simulation training and patient safety it's that aspect that attracts the greater focus and building on this, it's the team based working interactions and the crisis management scenarios, which is where the human factors expertise from the airline industry colleagues plays such an important role. Dr Griffiths, so identifying and mitigating latent safety threats using in situ simulation with human factors feedback delivered by pilots. So that's a really snappy title for a talk. <laughs> <laughs> Could, could I just ask you to summarise the, the the work that you undertook and, and, and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for having us today. Um, so I wonder actually if maybe we start off just with how it all began and maybe ask Alex uh, to just tell us how it began and then maybe I'll give us a summary of kind of what we've been doing and the patient safety side of things and how that's evolved. Yeah, absolutely, guys. So again, thanks for having, having me today. Um, I think the whole the whole dynamic where pilots really came into the Whittington Hospital actually started during the first wave um, at the Whittington where um, airline crew were uh, furloughed and uh, we actually came into the hospital to volunteer uh, in decompression lounges so serving tea coffee and empathy uh, I guess you could say um, and it was really just through serendipitous conversations with uh, clinical staff that uh, we just started talking about safety and our own um, aspects of safety from our separate industries. And that led to uh, an opportunity for uh, myself to be invited um, to uh, the ED uh, resus environment to go and watch uh, an in situ simulation. And um, I think it was really, it was just a really exciting opportunity. And I think without generalizing too much, pilots uh, really enjoy problem solving, being in dynamic environments, uh, working as a team. And I think it was that that exposure to a, a different industry, but with very much the same goals and fairly universal aims in human factors, where I think we just got really excited at the opportunity there to, uh, to offer a different perspective. So that's really where it all began. Um, and then before we knew it, um, there was just so much excitement around the programme and uh, we rapidly grew and uh, anaesthetics joined us fairly soon after um, and and so here we are now about 110 simulations in 
Um, we've actually got a couple of other trusts involved as well, but the Whittington, of course, is our hub where we work. So uh, that's really where it all began, though. Yeah, so it's been it's been an amazing journey. So in terms of the anaesthetic department, I think we've been involved in about 25 of those simulations over the last year, uh, you know, running usually fortnightly uh, the simulations. And obviously, we're all big fans of simulation here. And we know the benefits that it can bring in terms of individual and team learning, both in terms of clinical and practical skills, but also in terms of human factors. Uh, but I suppose the area that I then became interested in was using these in situ simulations to identify issues within the system as well. And that's what I really like about uh, in situ simulation is obviously you're doing it in the environment that you work in and you're able to pressure test these environments in stressful situations that perhaps don't occur so frequently in normal clinical practice. And it exposes all of these uh, issues and uh, from there, we can identify them and mitigate them, hence the uh, long title <laughs> of the presentation. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it's it's been formalising that process of identifying latent safety threats and formalising what we do with them afterwards and learning from our aviation colleagues uh, about how best to improve the systems that we work in. Brilliant. And that sounds, you know, really, really exciting project, really serendipitous, isn't it, as, as you said? Mm -hmm. uh, um, and just that that terminology, that latent safety threats, is is that a well-recognised term or is that something that's just come out of this this uh, uh, work? In, uh, in in situ simulation, it's a it's a recognised term. Alex, I think they use the term in aviation as well in terms of one of the aspects of threat and error management. And uh, yeah, it describes these these things within the system that make it easy for you to do the wrong thing or that make it hard for you to do the right thing, despite the best efforts of, you know, the person that's involved. And it can be to do with lots of things like, you know, checklists, training, equipment, the environment. Uh, and I think, yeah, as I said, in situ simulation with pressure testing of these environments is how that really works. But yeah, I think, Alex, it is in an aviation term as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we um, we put it into practice both through our simulation training um, and and actually just the way that we we conduct flights. So we we always have a record. Um, we have access whatever the the destination is. For instance, tomorrow I'm going to Thessaloniki uh, and I have access to information because I've never been there before that pertains to potential threats uh, that will affect that arrival there. And, it gives me information on the terrain that's around all the sort of unusual, as you say, Megan, the environment, very much like a clinical environment. We've got sort of sort of unusual wind effects when you go into Thessaloniki. And it actually then gives me an opportunity to start thinking more directly about what's going to affect us or destabilize an approach on the day. So, yeah, absolutely. The sort of latent safety threat approach is really fundamental in aviation as well. So so would I be correct then Alex in just thinking that's almost like broadening your peripheral vision it's just having that awareness of everything else that may impact so so what the weather might potentially be be going into to Thessalonica or what the airport layout might be those sort of things are what you're talking about absolutely David yeah so it it, it really just raises your situational awareness for both you and and actually as well your colleagues because that's really important so you you've got a team you've got a crew at the start of the day um, regardless of position, so the cabin crew as well, if, if I see that the weather tomorrow morning is looking like it's quite likely that we're going to fly, for instance, a missed approach, as we call it, a go around, 
then it's really important that I share that information with the crew at the start of the day because it it just gives them the chance to mentally prepare for their actions, just like we would as well. Uh, and then it gives you an opportunity then to focus more on your your standard operation whilst having something almost mentally rehearsed or pre-prepared uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so, uh, Megan, some of the work you did, so some of the scenarios you ran, one one of them was a, a trauma call. So if, in terms of the sort of latent safety threats when running trauma calls, what, what were the ones that you sort of focused on or picked up on those? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. We find usually between one and three different, you know, threats in, in each scenario that we run. Um, again, each are things kind of within the system that we can maybe improve upon. So I think that, you know, the trauma call one, one of the issues that we found was that people weren't sure how to summon the trauma team and put out the wrong emergency call, well, not the wrong, they put out an emergency call that they thought would help to get them the right team of people. But turns out within our hospital, that isn't perhaps the best or easiest way to get all the correct people uh, that you need to help run that trauma call. And that, you know, isn't anyone's fault. It's a problem with the training. It's a problem with, you know, systems and, and how to get the right help. Um, so that was one that we identified from that, that trauma call. But again, it can also be equipment, you know, people... Uh, I think during that scenario, we wanted to, the team wanted to put in a surgical chest drain uh, and they were handed a kind of Seldinger chest drain, so the wrong piece of equipment, but the person, you know, hadn't been aware that that was the wrong piece of equipment and then maybe the person thinks that that is the right one and starts to use it. And again, that's a, a latent safety threat because the right piece of equipment should be there so that you don't have that extra level of potential error. Uh, and so it's stuff like that that we've identified, yeah. And and one of the other scenarios I, I saw in your presentation that you ran was around a COVID nineteen intubation, which we're obviously all focused on at the moment. Mm. So 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 what what did you pick up during during that uh, uh, scenario? Yeah, we've actually this has been one of you know the highlights I think of this last year is the fact that we have been able to continue these in situ simulations and this training even throughout COVID nineteen. Uh, I think that's been a real bonus and a real, uh, a, you know, a real good thing from this project. Um, so it's been particularly useful, I think, actually, to test all of these new things that we've been doing during COVID. Uh, so obviously everyone, I'm sure, has developed lots of new protocols, new environments. We've been, you know, working in different environments in, you know, PPE that we're not used to. We're having communication issues that are new and different. And in-situ simulation actually provides the perfect way to test all of these things. Uh, so in terms of COVID-19 simulations that we've run, we've done simulations to test, you know, the proning checklist or to test an intubation checklist. And, uh, you know, we do that in real time and then we, we change the checklist after the simulation based on what the participants have found helpful or, or have found that has uh, inhibited them in some way. And, and we kind of use that as a real time uh, testing of these new things and new environments. Um, we did a nice piece of work with Alex uh, looking at communication with PPE and walkie talkies and again use simulation to kind of test different ways of communicating inside and outside of the room with COVID. So it's actually provided lots of opportunities uh, in terms of the in-situ simulation. So presumably there's going to be some significant benefits that you've discovered from from all of this work. What what are you going to do with the, with this now? Where are you going to take this project? <laughs> <It's> not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think from the um, 
from the pilot's perspective, uh, this this program has, it would be fair to say, completely changed the trajectory of our career paths as well. So we we're we're very focused. I think the latest forecast is for aviation to return to normality no earlier than 2024 now. But that that aside, I know it's quite sad. <laughs> but that aside, um, we're we're really dedicated. Actually, we've 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 built a, a huge uh, sim library. So we've got a virtual library now of every scenario. That's both the the technical write ups, the pre briefs, all the way through to the uh, technical feedback, and then that's collaborated with the human factors write ups. Uh, and that that just provides such a wide spanning potential for further education because I think. Megan can comment more on me than this, but but it's it's a time-consuming process going through the whole building of a simulation and a scenario, um, and and from the pilot's perspective, as we look to grow, really, uh, as the program develops and goes to other trusts, it's just such a useful resource for us to be able to train up more pilots by showing them specific medical scenarios and what to look for uh, when they're involved in them. So I think the future of it is really exciting. Um, we've we've been working with a few other trusts and. We weren't sure because at the Whittington, it was our first place we'd been um, and we've almost become part of the furniture, arguably. Uh, <laughs> but we, we, we maintained the same approach, I think, which was really important, which was that we were guests in someone else's house. And I think that that kind of mutual respect is really a key part of an interprofessional learning approach. Um, and I guess that's something that the likes of Martin Bromley has brought in 15 odd years ago now and made that sort of more of a human connection between aviation and healthcare. So we're, so in essence, we're just trying to continue that, that respectful progress of working together as opposed to us saying what aviation does that's great. It's very much shared learning. And the sort of questions that people ask when, when there's such a good idea of this is, is how on earth did you manage to get that, you know, get that funded or get the time or get the, 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 staff involved in all of this so how how did you manage all of that Megan? <laughs> I think uh, Alex is able to mention about funding but I think uh, from a medical side of things it is genuinely just a lot of enthusiasm uh, I think from you know faculty and participants we obviously couldn't do this without everyone uh, being involved and being motivated to do it and we've been really lucky that our department and our colleagues have all been uh, keen and enthusiastic to be involved with these simulations and I think you know having the pilots present does help that I think it you know increases people's willingness to be involved um, so I think from the medical side of things it's been hard work and enthusiasm uh, and in terms of funding Alex has done a lot of excellent work uh, from that point of view. Yeah the, the, the funding approach we've of course, a lot of the work that we did at the Whittington, we were just delighted to be involved uh, in something while we were furloughed. So, of course, it was uh, very much just something that we wanted to be a part of. But as we progressed, we were very fortunate to get some HEE funding that helped us and some education, uh, research and development uh, grants as well. Um, and I think that's that's really just funded for other pilots who have joined us just to pay for their time and their presence. And what's been really refreshing is I've got some great examples of some of the pilots who've used the money that they've got for their participation to pay for uh, further human factors training courses to get certifications. Um, and that that's just such a really nice way to invest the money back into back into the program itself. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of taking that this is the way that 
um, many organizations would want to do would want to go running some in-situ training putting their various uh, staff members through this uh, but if I can just ask you Alex so I think there's a clear benefit that I can see for healthcare. What's the clear benefit for the airline industry? What have you learned that that is going to alter your your uh, uh, industry or the or the simulation training that you're doing? Lots of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So becoming a medic now is a <laughs> career path change. <laughs> I, I would say that. Um, so I've just come out of my six monthly sim check. Uh, and I don't think it's any coincidence that the performances I've had in the, my, my past two simulations have actually been some of the best performances I've had since, since I started flying about 15, 16 years ago. Um, and that's really just because we're embedded in another culture, but learning more about human factors and learning about it from a, a, a different aspect. So some great examples if we're going to be specific. I, I, I just, I'm so impressed by the way that clinical teams manage startle and it's something that in aviation we've worked really hard on and that sort of that almost physical response to to fear or something suddenly changing that threat of change and in aviation it's quite prescribed now and um, we call it caging the chimp and sort of almost counting to 10 by going through a scan of our instruments to keep us sitting on our hands but i actually think sort of medical teams are incredible at doing that naturally uh, and i think we can actually learn an awful lot lot from them in that respect uh, and, and other areas as well just the, the ability to cancel out noises uh, and focus on tasks uh, again in aviation we we have a very sterile environment once we get below certain altitudes and of course this is a great principle to employ within a healthcare setting but sometimes you just can't do that and I think clinical teams have an incredible ability to to block out things that they don't need to hear and focus on communication. I think we call it the cocktail party effect in human factors. So it's that it's picking out sort of the sensory or the, the items that are actually man or needed uh, when you're carrying out a task. So that's just two examples of things that I think if we could if we could have clinical teams in the future maybe coming and watching us do simulation, uh, I think that would be a really great opportunity for us to really start sharing sharing our opinion or sort of views on each other's performance and practice. Yeah, and and Megan, what what what's the sort of most important thing that you've taken from from all of this work? Would you say? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, we have made some real changes that have benefited patient safety. As you know, with the involvement of our clinical governance lead, Gillian has been really helpful, and we've formalised that process. I think that's great. One thing that I've taken from it is that you can train yourself in human factors in the same way that you can train yourself, you know, in the clinical skills, and that you can, you know, you do need to formally think about it. So you know, as we you know, we're talking about these stressful situations. I think as anaesthetists in particular, we're very good at then, you know, staying calm and thinking through our systems and using our A to E approach. But in the same way that you do that clinically, you can also think about that, the human factors and think, wait, shall I ask an open question and check if everyone is on the same page or I need to directly uh, hand over to someone because I'm leaving. And you do, you can force yourself to do these things that I think do not potentially come naturally to us as clinicians. Uh, readback's a good example that we've been experimenting with and that has come up in a few simulations. Uh, and it's not natural for us, I think, to read back, for example, drug doses. But actually, if you're working with someone you know new or that you haven't worked with, I think you can 
train yourself and then force yourself to do that and improve your practice and so you can so I think yeah sorry just just explain that a bit more just to, that, that concept of a readback yes yeah well Alex will be the expert on readback but um <laughs> so giving for example I'd like you to give 100 milligrams of propofol and normally we would just I don't think the person receiving that instruction would necessarily read back that instruction. Uh, so read back would be the recipient of that uh, instruction saying, OK, I have given 100 milligrams of propofol or I'm going to give 100 milligrams of propofol. So it's confirming that they've understood and received the same information that you think that you have given them. Uh, and is that right, Alex? You'd agree with yeah. that? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, yeah, it's not something that we do naturally, but it's something that yeah, as it's one of many aspects of human factors that I think you can train yourself in and you can think about and you can bring to your practice uh, as a result of simulation and training and learning about it. Yeah. And just exploring some of these these simulations that you've done, is it is this all about uh, uh, optimizing the uh, the performance, if you like, or the safety of the individual, or is it m more about the team approach or is it a combination of all of that well this is why i think in situ simulation is so great because it's all of the things it's the individual learning uh in terms of both clinical side of things and your own personal human factors issues but also it's the team learning together and it's really good i think for just team bonding certainly we've become uh, very close between departments as a result of these simulations and getting to know people in different departments has been really beneficial. Um, but then also the systems learning that comes as well because you're doing it in the environment that you work in. So that's why I think it's great because it's all of these three things which are all important in different ways. Brilliant. And, and one of the aspects that we often see in healthcare, Alex, is that we often see clinicians, particularly in the, in the operating theatre, being relatively um, uh, uh, isolated and operating as a sort of uh, a lone operator in some situations, which you probably don't see so much in the aviation industry. Is that did did you see, did you notice any any differences there, or or, or or is it similar in the aviation? That's a good question. I think I think when we see when we see that that you could term it silo or that that sort of individual separation that you have, I think in a in a theatre environment, for instance, there are times where you, you have to be in that situation. Um, and I think what's really important and something that we, we do actually have in aviation as well, and I, I think Captain Chesley Sullenberger talks about this, the Hudson miracle, that everybody had their own individual roles to perform and there wasn't enough time for everybody to keep an eye on each other. So there was a reliance on that, that sort of professional standards that everybody had. And, and I think that that is similar in healthcare, that you, you do all need to, at times, just get on with your tasks. But actually, what's really important is that there's an opportunity then to review as a group um, and come together at a suitable time, whether that's coordinated by the lead or, or somebody else who's got a concern or needs to verbalise that. And, and I think it's the same in aviation. If, if we're managing an emergency scenario and things start to deteriorate in the cabin, we're not aware of that. We can't see it because of the physical barriers. And we might get a call from the cabin crew to say that actually, you know, the smoke's getting a bit worse. We need to start to think about a different approach to managing the smoke in the cabin. And we actually have then set procedures that can remove smoke, smoke from the cabin. So, so actually there, there is a case where we do need to work independently, but at the same time that, that sort of regular review process then brings us all together and then problem solves more collectively. 
I think you find it perhaps the other way sometimes as well, Alex. You know, we've done, for example, some of the theatre simulations and there's often 15 plus people in the room and you've been like, wow, there's so much going on. Yeah. <laughs> how can you keep a track of all of these different things? And I think that's maybe quite different to how you work sometimes. So it yeah. works both ways, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. That that sort of a large amount of people in one one space or working together is, I think that's something that, that is very different to aviation. Mm. Watch that. We, we're, we're so impressed that everybody can sort of just jump in and, and interact and, and, and sort of communicate mm. in that respect. So that's certainly a difference compared mm. to the world, for sure. Brilliant. So if I asked you both then to perhaps summarise or, or capture what you see the benefits of this interprofessional approach, what, what, what would you say, Megan? So I think... Uh, a, f a few things, obviously, lots of things. Um, firstly, just in terms of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the popularity of the simulations and the kind of formality of these simulations, I think having uh, the pilots present has really helped that. You know, we have a set time when they're here, so we know we have to do it at that time. I think people are a bit excited and a bit, you know, and more enthusiastic perhaps about getting involved in the simulation. So that's one aspect. And then I think, the other aspects are in terms of both the human factors and the systems approach. I think we can learn a lot from aviation. So in terms of kind of the safety culture, in terms of human factors and psychological safety, speaking up, flat hierarchies, open questions. I think we've learned a lot from that side of human factors. And then again, you know, the fact that we work in these complex environments and that we do you know, we, how we can help mitigate those threats. I think we always use that emergency buzzer example, don't we, Alex, that, um, you know, we found a buzzer that's not working. And Alex mentioned, you know, if that happened in an aircraft, the whole fleet would be, you know, brought down until it's fixed. And I think it's trying to learn from aviation that we should take our system threats seriously and deal with them so that we're working in the safest possible environment. Yeah, really strong, strong uh, conclusions there. <laughs> Alex, what about, what about from you? I would say that it's it's about ensuring that everybody has a, a, a sort of professional relationship and everybody gets on uh, really well. There's there's mutual respect between the two professions, and I think once you have that environment where both sets of both sets of industries can work with each other, as opposed to somebody telling someone else how to do their job, um, that's something how I've I've always throughout this program thought: How would I feel if somebody was watching me from their industry, um, and how would they? critique or not critique, but offer feedback for me, I think it's really important that, that you do uh, provide a shared learning. So for me, it was, it was about having a different perspective um, and using our aviation examples to, to draw parallels. And, and that team approach really resonates. So CPOC are, are, are obviously uh, keen to develop um, pathways and new ways of working or change the traditional models uh, to maximise our, our, all of our colleagues' skills and, their, and uh, ensure that benefits uh, our patients. Uh, and that's irrespective of whether they're surgeon, physicians, anaesthetists, critical care specialists, nurses, ODPs or, or, or AHPs, whoever. Uh, and so part of the work that CPOC is doing is they're developing a, a curriculum, a paraoptive care curriculum in conjunction with HEE, uh, which is not just for for medics, but actually for all healthcare professionals. So I think, you know, some of this work may well feed into into that development. So just in in and then in conclusion, Megan, I just uh, I 
just offer you very many congratulations on winning this uh, this trainee presentation and just wondered how can our listeners find out more about the work that that you're doing yeah um well yeah thank you very much um and just at that point as well just to say thank you to everyone who's been involved in all of the simulations as both faculty and participants because we obviously couldn't do it without them and as i do have to say a special mention to dr katie Batt and dr robbie lloyd who've been really key at this project as well uh how to get involved and to find out more is well, the Wing Factors website, which Alex might tell us more about, uh, has a lot of information there um, about what they've been doing. Uh, I'm happy to be contacted, happy to receive emails. Um, you can watch our my presentation that I gave at the uh, at the patient safety uh, conference. Um, and yeah, just get get involved, get started, uh, do some in situ simulations. It's great for the individual, the team, and the system, and it just takes. Well, yeah, to initially it just takes a bit of enthusiasm and motivation uh, from, from some people. So, yeah. Brilliant. And you mentioned there Wing Factor. So if I've got this right, <laughs> Wing Factors is an educational organisation working in collaboration with the NHS uh, to make a difference to human factors training uh, within the hospitals. But Alex, where, how can people find out a bit more about Wing Factors? Yeah, absolutely. So the Wing Factors website would be a good start. Um, so that's wingfactors.co.uk. Uh, if you go on that that website, you can follow some of the progress um, that we've made. And actually via the website, you can sign up to the newsletter, which we provide. So it's a free monthly newsletter and it, it contains some uh, practical tips and some of our findings from the previous month's simulations. Uh, and it also gives some aviation tidbits and a few guest appearances as well from some of the staff at different hospitals we work at. So I think the newsletter is a good start, but of course, via the website, you're very welcome to contact us at any point as well. So that's probably the best way. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for both of you for talking with me. Uh, I think that's been a really inspirational uh, discussion and uh, you should uh, both be very much congratulated for the work that you've been doing. Um, if you, if any of our listeners have got comments on what we're discussing here during this podcast, we'd uh, love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us by uh, contacting us by email via the CPOC website. That's www.cpoc.org.uk. Or you could tweet <laughs> us directly at CPOC News. And if you'd like to be kept updated on our work, please fill out the contact form on our web website and you can sign up to our monthly newsletter uh, so thank you all very much great thank you very much for having us thank you thank you for listening to this royal college of anaesthetists podcast make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favorite podcatcher also if you enjoyed this episode please make sure you give us a review it helps others find our podcast and finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.